0: Okay, let's uh, take our Bibles. Open at Ephesians chapter one, and and let's read again from verse fifteen, just to get the whole prayer together. And today we're going to focus tonight our focus and attention on the uh, the exalted Christ. And um, as we sung, I really pray that we would truly turn our eyes to Jesus, His His glory and our greatest prize, our greatest security. And um, but yeah, let's read from verse thirteen. Remember, the the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's read. and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's read. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are our greatest treasure. There is no one like you. Um, you alone are the Messiah, the Son of God. And you love us, Lord. You are the bread of life and Whoever believes in you, whoever receives you, will never hunger and will never thirst again. Lord, we want to confess this afternoon that we do love you, Lord, but we so long to love you more. We so desire to see you afresh this afternoon, to see your glory through the pages of your script of the word by your spirit. Oh, Father, please give us, even right now, your Holy Spirit. Fill us with your spirit. We ask for him, Lord. We are 100% dependent on you to open our eyes that we may see and behold wondrous things in your law. I pray, Lord, that as we leave here, that we would have a greater affection, a greater love for Jesus and a desire to worship him and obey him in all of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, beloved, we are at the close of chapter 1 in Ephesians, very close to the end. Um, There's two more sermons, this one and then next time, the last one. And it truly is an amazing to consider how deep this chapter is. Really, it moves from eternity to eternity, eternity past and what Jesus has done in history and to eternity future. This is high theology. Theology is short for the study of or the knowledge of God. And it really takes Paul three whole chapters to give us What God has done to save us and to bless us in Christ. And we know that, you know, this is generally how Paul structures his letters. Like the first three chapters or the first couple of chapters is doctrine, theology, what God has done for us. And then the end of the book, he generally ends with, okay, now therefore, because this is true, now live um, worthy of the calling. In chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians, there's only one command to obey. That is two, verse eleven, that says, "Remember who you were." Okay, that's the only command. The rest is what God has done for you. The only thing you must do in chapters one to three is remember, remember your past. Okay, so this is really a chapter that shows us what God has done. The first three chapters of Ephesians. But what makes chapters one to three even more unique in the book of Ephesians is that they are not. It's not just theology. These chapters, it's not just Paul explaining to us what we know, it's really bracketed, or you could say book end, book ended, I think that's a verb, of thanking and praising God. He's thanking God, he's praising God for almost three whole chapters. Chapter one is a praise, it's a poem of praise, and then he thanks God. And in the book and chapter three ends with prayer where he bends his knee before the Father as well to ask for the Spirit. So you see, Paul is really mixing his theology with thanksgiving. Remember, where is Paul at this moment? Chapter 3, verse 1, just glance over there. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ. Paul is in prison and he cannot stop thanking God for what he has done for us in Christ. That's really helpful for us to know. The best theology will always lead to the best thanksgiving. The more true theology, if theology is done right, it should lead you to thanksgiving. Father, we bless your name. Thank you for blessing us with every spiritual blessing, choosing us before the foundation of the world, adopting us through Christ. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The people who know the deepest theology are the people who are the most thankful to God. And that's how it should be. If you if it if there isn't thankfulness to God for what He has done, the more you study, the more you know, it's really that's wrong. Something is malfunctioning within your soul. So the more we know God, the more we can be thankful, even in a prison or in our case 2021, which might feel like a prison for you, you know. Or, 2020 for that matter as well these two years but but God is still the same our inheritance is untouched and Jesus is still coming back. <laughs> so we have reasons to say amen and be thankful and Paul's desire in these verses or you could say the Holy Spirit's desire because remember he's inspired by the spirit is for you to share that thanksgiving is for you to also when you read and when we study these verses to share that same bubbling up of the soul to thank God for who he is, to praise him. The Spirit wants you to see these blessings of Christ so clearly, so vividly that your heart would rise up to praise God. And that's really what Paul is doing in verses 15 to 23. This is what he's doing. He's thanking God for these authentic Christians who has faith in God and in Christ and love for the Christians. And then he prays that they might be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to know, remember, three things. The hope of our calling. What are the riches of God's inheritance in the saints? And what is, God, what is the Christian's present power? Now, last week, we've considered the, the two aspects of that power. Namely, that this power is used to save us. Remember, we looked at that. The same power that rose or raised Christ from the dead raised us up spiritually as well. But it also is the power to sanctify us. It's available for us. We don't just have past grace or future grace, but we have present grace. Present grace for our sins and our trials and our sufferings. But if you have noticed something interesting of what Paul does, it almost feels as if Paul doesn't stop praying. If you read these verses, he's praying from verse 15 up until verse 19, and then he like shifts to who Jesus is. He just starts going into Jesus Raised from the dead, seated at the right hand, all things under his feet. And like, okay, but where's the amen to this prayer? But then chapter 2 just goes on, and you were dead, and he just goes on. It's as if Paul just flows between praying and theology, and it's going in. It's woven into together. as It's seamless. It's natural. So he, he cannot, he's busy praying, but then he almost like focuses and meditates on how glorious Christ is, how exalted he is. And that's really how secure we are because that's the same power that's working in us. And to see Jesus in that exalted position has a, answers a really practical question for us as Christians. And it's simply this. It's the same thing that verse 11 does as well. It says this, that if all these blessings are truly so amazing... But the question remains, how can you and I be absolutely sure that we will have these blessings, that these blessings will be ours, that there's not, not some kind of an authority, not some kind of a name, not some kind of a power out there that can snatch us out of the hand of Christ? Or to put it another way, is God fighting with the devil With, with and sometimes he wins and sometimes he loses and... The more we pray, we, we pushes the edge to God's side and now he wins again. And, and the future is really uncertain because there are these powers, these demonic forces, these, these things outside that is stopping God's plan to save, sanctify and bring us home. And so Paul answers that kind of a deep concern we might have by saying, look to Christ. Turn your eyes to Jesus. In effect, he's saying this, Christian, do you want to bank your entire hope on God? Do you want proof that nothing will be able to snatch you out of God's hand? Do you want to be utterly certain that God's promises for you will come to pass? Well, let me show you who Jesus is. Your Jesus. Let me show you what God's power did with this Christ. And where he is right now. That is your security. Your security. As certain as Christ is God and God is unchangeable, that's how certain our blessings are, our inheritance is. And this is what we need most in troubled times, right? When we are in trials like being in prison or difficult situations, we need security. We need to know, are we going to make it? Because we are like sheep. And sheep get scared. <laughs> okay but it's as we look to the shepherd, as we look to the shepherd who loved us by laying down his life for us, that we have confidence again. So the third thing that God's power does, not just save us, not just sanctify us, but it also secures us, it secures us. And we know that by looking at what God's power did with Christ. And specifically, as we study, as we look at this text, God's power did four things with Christ, four things with Jesus, and as we look at these four elements of what God's power did to Christ, that just increases our security, increases our confidence in our Savior. The first thing God's power did was to raise him from the dead. We've already looked at this briefly last time. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Remember, nothing displays God's power as raising this man who has just absorbed The wrath of God for millions of souls on the cross. If one man was supposed to stay dead, it was Jesus. Right? We die for our sins alone. Imagine millions of people's sins on you and you die with that. You should not come up. You should stay dead forever and ever, a million times over. And yet God raised him up. And that's what God did with us. We too were dead in our sins. God raised us up with Christ. We have a new heart, new desires, a new love for both Christ and the church. And that's the sign that we are saved. So, the first thing God's power did was to raise Christ from the dead. Second thing God's power did, and we'll spend the majority of our time on on number two, is that God seated him at his right hand. God seated Christ at his right hand. Look at verse 20, the rest of the verse. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now that's a quote from the Old Testament. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 110 verse 1, which by the way, is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the entire New Testament. So the most frequently quoted Old Testament verse is this verse. Listen to Psalm 110, verse 1. This is a Psalm of David, and it reads like this. It says, The Lord, all caps, Yahweh, the Lord says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, this text has baffled Pharisees and baffled religious leaders of Jesus' day. David says to the Lord, Yahweh, he says that that Lord says to my Lord Adonai to sit at his right hand. So the question is to whom is God speaking? David doesn't have a lord. He is the king. There's no one above David. David is the highest has the highest position in Israel. He doesn't have a lord. So when he says the Lord says to my Lord, what David What are you, who are you speaking to? Who are you speaking about? And we know the answer, right? We see the fulfillment of that because we know that's a prophecy. That's a prophecy referring to the son of David, which will be at the very same time, the Lord of David. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were baffled about is how can the son of David at the same time be the Lord of David? Doesn't make sense. Your son is always lower than you. Yet. Jesus is not just the Son of David or the Son of Man, but the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. The second person of the Trinity took on flesh and the Messiah, the Son, the King of kings, will sit at the right hand of God. Remember when we use that terminology right hand of God, we're not thinking of a literal right hand of God. God, the Father is spirit and he doesn't have a possess a body like ours. Rather, it's a metaphor that refers to where his position is, second in authority under God the Father. He has, the, it's a position of power, position of honor. It's really a unique position, position because there is only one of them. There's not a two right-hand seats, right? There's only one right-hand seat, and Christ is occupying that seat. And this psalm was fulfilled when Jesus ascended into heaven. He's now seated at that place of honor and power and authority, and here's it's important to note this, that he's seated at the right hand of God as a man. As a man, one like us is ruling on the right hand. One like us is interceding for us. In other words, this is important. Christ did not put off his humanity when he ascended into heaven. Some people believe he was raised bodily, but then he kind of unzipped himself Of his flesh and like assumed his spiritual glory again no one of the amazing things about the incarnation when Christ took on flesh he took on flesh forever listen to Acts 1 verse 9 to 11 it says when he had said these things and as they were looking on he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight and while they were gazing into heaven as he went behold two men stood by them in white robes and said men of Galilee Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That's the key phrase. Christ is going to come in the same way as he left with the body and he's going to come with the body. Now, can you imagine, can you just think about this? that we will forever see the physical Lord Jesus. We will forever be able, as Revelations, as we have read in Revelations, behold the scars as proof of his love for us. Right? Every time they saw the lamb, he was as the lamb that was slain. Forever we will be reminded of what he has done for us. And this is why this is so encouraging. That man is our savior at the right hand of God. He is our king at the right hand of God. He is the God-man, our mediator, our representative, our Lord and savior forever at the right hand of God. You and I do not have to fear God's judgment because Christ is our advocate. Here's an illustration, just to, I want you to feel this. It's like the brothers of Joseph, when they find, when they found out that joseph their brother is second in command in egypt that removes all fear of pharaoh all fear of coming with the family because my brother is ruling and reigning we can go there's no fear of death there's no fear of punishment for my brother is ruling right in the same way you and i have that same confidence to stand before god's judgment because christ our elder brother, who has died for us, who has risen from the dead, ascended on high, is for us. He's second him come on, on our behalf. But notice where Paul says Christ is seated in verse 20. He says, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Remind the heavenly places simply just refers to spiritual realities. Things, spiritual truths, spiritual realities we cannot see with the naked eye. Like things like the devil, the Lord Jesus himself, seated in that position of authority over our spiritual blessings and all of our spiritual blessings. Those are the heavenly places. And here's the good news is as Christ has been raised and seated, we too have been raised and seated with him. Look at chapter two, verse six. Just glance over to chapter two, verse six. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. You see, one of the implications of this is to know that as safe as secure as christ is at the right hand of god we are seated with him there that is ultimate security that is ultimate safety we are already above every authority in a a spiritual sense that nothing can snatch us out nothing can threaten us we are safe And just to make the point crystal clear, Paul continues to show that he's above all kind of demonic authorities. Look at verse 21. He says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Now, in in, in the book of Ephesians, when he speaks about rulers, authorities, powers, dominion, he clearly refers to demonic powers. Just turn over to chapter 6, verse 12. At the end of the book, he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against? The rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So when, when, when Paul says Christ is seated at above all these authorities, he's specifically thinking about demons, demonic forces over this evil, this present age. So we can't see how the devil is working, but we can know that we are safe, right? And this is, a, this is why we should trust in Christ is because the devil is daily at work to destroy your faith. The devil is daily at work to bring fresh lies for you to believe. The de- devil is daily at work to seek to make you useless for the kingdom of God. He's daily working to tempt you with customized temptations only for you because he knows your weaknesses. He knows how you, want, how you are tempted in special ways. And he is making all effort to make shipwreck of your faith. Will he succeed? He cannot. <laughs> he cannot. Because Christ is far above and we are seated with him. Satan and demons do not have the final say. God has Satan on a leash. <laughs> he cannot go one step further until, unless it's permitted By him. Jesus' authority is final, not Satan's. And here's the best example of how this looked like practically. Look at Luke 22, verse 31. Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Okay, Just stop there. Think about how scary that is. Satan coming. Lord, can I have him? Can I have Mafolo? Can I have Esther? Can I have Karnu? I want to sift him and her like wheat. Let me have them. Peter might have, And what did you say, Lord? How did you respond to that? Listen to Jesus' response, right? But I have what? Prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. And when you have turned, Again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus' prayer is effective. It's effective. It works. He says, when you have turned, not if you have turned. In other words, Peter, because I've prayed for you, your faith will remain. It will not fail. Because the father is stronger than the devil. My prayers are for you and I have a higher authority than him. Jesus' authority and God's power secures us in that our faith will remain through every spiritual battle, through every spiritual war. 1 John 4 verse 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So what a comfort that is for us. But the text continues, that Christ is not just above all demonic forces, but also, I think the next phrase refers to all human manifestations of demonic religions. So not just demonic forces, but also above every name, every authority on earth as well. Look at 21, verse 21, the rest it says, "And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come." False religion is always the work of Satan. It's the substitute for the human heart to worship. And along the way, there's risen some powerful names as false religions have come along. In Ephesus, in this context, the name of Artemis, for example. Artemis the Great. That's how the Ephesians would have called the so-called God. So when Christians hear these names, there might be a temptation to fear them. But no, Paul says he's above every name that is named. Every human name, every so-called God that might scare you, you don't have to be scared of. Or when human rulers become so powerful that we tend to cower under them like Caesar or Rome or Hitler, there's a temptation to fear them above God. Yet Christ's name is above those names or when someone casts a spell on you or curses you or an incantation or whatever name they might use to try to entice or cause you to be fearful, Christians can be secure and rest because Christ is above those names. Every single person, every power and authority and name is below our Lord Jesus. His name is to be feared more than any other name. You shouldn't be fearful of so-called names, great names, great authorities, but about his name. When will people bow their knee and confess that Jesus is Lord? When they hear his name. Listen to Philippians 2 verse nine. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, what? The name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the name of Jesus, people will bow. Think about the greatest name that is still gonna come. The greatest name that will be demonically empowered, right, the Antichrist. He will be the greatest name that will ever come We might be the most tempted to fear. And you know what I love about 2 Thessalonians 2? How does Jesus win him? What does he do? 2 Thessalonians 2 says, He kills the Antichrist by the breath of his mouth. As easy as breathing, the Antichrist is dead. You know when you like were looking forward to this UFC fight or this boxing fight and you're like, it's like the main event and everybody, and then the first punch, the guy's down. You're like, wow, that was a waste. That was money wasted, right? You know, in a very, very similar way, it's going to be like that. It's like, this is not a competition. This is not hard for God, for Christ. It's not going to be a fight. It's not going to be a challenge. But then just to like, help us to really believe this, not just presently, but in a, even a future possibility cannot happen. Verse 21, not just every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There isn't even a future possibility that something will come stronger than Christ to rob us of Christ, to rob us of our inheritance. Nothing can. So beloved, the first application of this, and I've already alluded to it, is to stop thinking that God and Satan are somehow in this cosmic war and they are, at, they are equal with one another, sometimes winning, sometimes losing. You should not think that there's any spell, any demon, any spirit, any ruler, any authority in whatever realm, what you can imagine, that can overthrow his plans, overthrow his purposes, who can act apart from God's authority. no. Or well, do not think like some do, that God is so high that, he, that he's really helpless to protect us from the myriad of millions of spirits between us and him, between earth and heaven. And we have to try to find our way through the thousands of mediators before we can reach this all high God. No. God is our Emmanuel. God with us. God in us through his spirit. And we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's where we are. That's our position. So if something bad happens to you, if a curse or whatever power, whatever authority is launched against you, this is what you need to believe. This only comes to me by the express permission of my Father. Express permission intentions of God for my good this doesn't come to me outside of God's plan as if God is frantically trying to protect us from all the spiritual forces around us no all things work together for good even demonic activity even things that God permits into our lives is for our good And that's how we can have that peace that transcends all understanding that that guards our minds, protects it. We really, really need this peace to protect our thinking. So here's the good news. You don't have to anoint your house. You don't have to wave a flag. You don't have to blow a shofar. You don't have to sprinkle oil on the corners of your car to protect it. To dispel demons or to ward off curses. No, Christ already conquered, Christ already won. So we don't need to help him. We don't no, need no, to, you know, help him defeat the already defeated. Now we just need to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Listen to Colossians 2, verse 15. I love this verse. It says, Christ disarmed. Disarmed. The rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Disarmed in the sense that they cannot ultimately hit, they cannot ultimately hurt you anymore. Yes, just to clarify, he can harm you temporarily. Yes, the devil is a million times stronger and smarter than you are. Don't underestimate him, don't think he's a kitten, he's a lion, right? Walking around, looking to whom he can devour. So don't, don't think you can stand against the devil on your own. But also don't fear him. Fear God. He's been defanged. His claws have been snipped. Okay, He's a lion, but he can't hurt you ultimately. So rest, rest in Christ. God has seated him at the right hand far above. The next two, we're going to walk through a little bit more briefly. God's power raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand. And the third thing God did was to put all things under his feet. Verse 22, in the beginning. And God, the Father, put all things under his feet. So this is not just a logical um, progression of, of course, if he's above all things, that means all things are now under his feet. But this is really an echo of a quote in Psalm chapter 8. This is quoting what Adam and Eve were supposed to be doing. But now as the second Adam, Christ is fulfilling. Listen to Psalm 8 verse 6. So David is reflecting on God and how he made him. So you have given him man, dominion over the works of your hands. Look at the next phrase. You have put all things under his feet. He's speaking about mankind, Adam and Eve. God has put all things under the feet of Adam and Eve, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, and birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. So David is reflecting on how God created us to have dominion over his creation, that all things were supposed to be under our feet. But what was the problem? We failed miserably. Instead of wisely ruling creation for God's glory, we began to worship creation for our glory. Instead of wisely ruling all of creation for the good of others, now we are seeing how much we can take for ourselves and our own pleasures. Adam failed and so did we. But the second Adam came. The second Adam came. Christ, he came to fulfill what the original designed for man was. And that's why this language of all things being put under his feet is really meditating that Christ is restoring creation. He is going to rule creation as it was intended. Do you want to know how Adam and Eve were supposed to rule? Look at the cross. Love others to such an extent that you give up your very life for the good of others. The first Adam went to the tree to commit the most horrible sin that you can imagine, to destroy the biggest, the most amount of people you can imagine. The second Adam went to the tree to die, to save us, to commit the most selfless act imaginable for the most good. And that last enemy that Christ is going to put under his feet to rule is death. Jesus is going to kill death, put death to death when he comes again. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 25 says, He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So, beloved, thank God he didn't leave us in the brokenness of our first, ad- our first father, Adam and Eve. He didn't just leave us in this broken earth. He will restore everything, including us, forever and ever. And here's the last thing. The last thing God's power has done with Christ is He has given Him as head to the church. Look at verse 22. It says, And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Christ as head refers to His authority. He has authority. He is the head of all things. He has authority over everything in creation. So the, the picture is perfect. Our heads makes the decisions and our body follows. What your head decides, your body responds to. So Christ is the head. He's ruling all of world and all of the world's history. But do you see why this is so com- comforting? He is the head of everything to whom? In the end of verse 22 as head over all things, to the church. To the church. Everything Christ does, he does for us. He does for his bride. Every decision, everything he permits, everything that he allows is always for the nourishment and cherishing of his bride, the church. By the way, that's exactly how husbands are supposed to be the head of their wives to make every decision, every Plan, everything must always be for the good of his wife. It's always for her best interest, always for the best interest of the children. Look at chapter 5. He actually uses the very same language. Chapter 5, verse 28. 528. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Just as Christ cherishes the church, husbands cherish their wives. They rule as heads for the good of their bride, for the good of their children. Everything is with their best interest at heart. So beloved, how secure are you? How safe are you in the hands of God? supremely God has raised him from the dead he seated him at the right hand far above all names and authorities in this present age in the ages to come for all of eternity nothing will frustrate his kingdom or stop it from coming he put all things under his feet as the second Adam to restore all things and he gave this very Christ over all things to us let us bow our knees. Let us worship him. He is worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we thank you for your glory that we can behold in this text. Thank you that your sovereignty, your rule is unshakable. Thank you that you are praying for us. Even at this very moment, Lord, you're praying for all of your brothers that our faith will not fail. Even if Satan sifts us like wheat, even if we lose everything like Job. Lord, you keep us. You are faithful. Lord, I pray that you will please protect our hearts from any and all fear of any authority, whether human authorities, whether demonic authorities, Lord, that we would not fear those. For you did not give us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and self-control. Lord, we only have one being to fear, and that is you. And yet, Lord, our fear of you draws us to you for although you are almighty, all-holy, all-powerful, you died for us and you loved us, Lord. You you descended into the lower regions, the earth, and you've risen again and ascended on high as a man, Lord Jesus. Thank you for that. Pray that we would rest in Christ, rest in you, Lord, and that you would bind our hearts, that we would love you with a greater affection, Even as we leave this place, we pray this in Jesus' name.